0: So my name is Charles Matouk, and I'm the Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs in the Department of Neurosurgery at Yale University. I also serve as the Section Chief of Neurovascular Surgery and the Director of the Normal Pressure Hydrocephalus Program at Yale New Haven Hospital.
1: Dr. Matouk, there's something exciting happening in the treatment of hydrocephalus. First of all, tell us what hydrocephalus is.
0: Hydrocephalus is extremely common in neurosurgery, and it actually affects a lot of people, both children and adults. And it can sort of easily be thought about as a condition where there's too much water on the brain, and so the brain gets wet. And because the brain is essentially a series of electrical circuits, wet wires don't work too good, and there can be problems.
1: And we don't exactly know why some people get this and others don't.
0: That's exactly right. You know, hydrocephalus can be the result of a number of different conditions, and we understand some of them. Sometimes, for example, in children, you can be born with hydrocephalus. Other times, it's the result of trauma or infection or things of that nature. But the most common, most commonly in adults, we don't really have a good understanding of why it develops. We do know that it's associated with age. So as you get older and maybe even very old, the likelihood of developing hydrocephalus becomes higher.
1: There is something called NPH, and that is related to dementia and hydrocephalus. Could you explain that?
0: Yeah. So really what I specialize in is the adult form of hydrocephalus, the most common of which is normal pressure hydrocephalus. And we can think of normal pressure hydrocephalus as being what in medicine we refer to as a clinical radiographic syndrome. And so unlike, you know, a sodium level where you can say somebody has a high sodium or a low sodium based on a single test, here we don't really have a good test to say whether or not you have NPH or normal pressure hydrocephalus. It's really a gestalt of a number of clinical and radiographic factors that when you put them together, establish the condition. And we can go through what those things are now, if you like.
1: Yes, please. I understand one of them is the gate, how a person walks.
0: It is. So often one of the first things that patients will complain about is difficulty with their walking or the sense of feeling unsteady. We call that gait instability. One of the earliest markers, in fact, is difficulty getting up out of a chair Mm -hmm. or a soft couch Mm -hmm. where you really have to push up with your arms. And then once you're on your feet, you have to take a moment to catch your balance. So gait instability is really a very important hallmark, a clinical hallmark of the condition. The other two clinical pieces that are often associated with MPH is urinary incontinence, so not being able to hold your bladder. That starts off most commonly as a feeling of urinary urgency, which means that like when you have to go to the bathroom, you have to go right now. And often you'll have sometimes bedwetting at night, and that's sort of how it starts. But it can progress to being fully not continent during the day as well, which can be very difficult you know, both psychologically and for caretakers. And then mild cognitive decline or a dementia-like syndromes, trouble with your memory are another important piece to this puzzle. So those three things, gain stability, urinary urgency or incontinence, and dementia or mild cognitive issues in particular with memory, short-term memory, are the clinical hallmarks of the condition.
1: That sounds also like getting old in many ways. It's,
0: it's, I'm glad that you said that. So and that's the problem with this particular diagnosis is that if you think about any of these problems in isolation, they're extremely common and they're more common as we get older. So for gait instability, for example, we think that about 20% of people over the age of 75 years old will have significant gait instability. If you think about urinary incontinence, We think it's present in somewhere between 20% of men and 40% of women over the age of 60. And mild cognitive impairment as you get older or dementia syndromes might affect as many as 35% of people over the age of 70. It even gets more extreme. So we don't want to say that everybody has NPH because any of these conditions in isolation can occur. They're extremely common with a high frequency. And so you have to couple that syndrome with some other things. And the the other thing, which is how we establish the diagnosis is that you have to have fluid on the brain on imaging. And the way that that looks is that when you look at a picture, there are cavities in the center of your brain that house water Mm -hmm. and that those cavities get abnormally big. Cavities are called ventricles. And if they're too big, we call it ventriculomegaly. So it's like the ventricles are too big on a CT scan or an MRI. And then the last test is this sort of provocative test, which is drawing fluid off your brain and seeing if your symptoms improve. And it turns out that the fluid in your spinal column in your back and the fluid in your brain are part of one continuous space And so you can remove fluid from your brain, believe it or not, by putting a needle in your back. And if you do that and your NPH symptoms get better, then that's the last piece of the puzzle to establish the diagnosis. So it's the clinical triad plus big ventricles on a CT or MRI plus improvement when you take the fluid off your back and you get better. That's what establishes the diagnosis of NPH. And that's how we distinguish between the very many people as you get older that have urinary incontinence, dementia, and gait instability and isolation.
1: One of the phrases that you use to get better, that's pretty incredible. It's a type of dementia that we thought there wasn't a cure for. And if you have NPH, there's a possibility that you could turn it around.
0: That's exactly right. Now, the treatment, which is a surgical treatment, Mm for MPH is really, I think, best at improving the gait, but in almost all our patients that have definite MPH, their dementia syndrome will also respond. And it's a little bit of a unique dementia in the sense that it's not forgetfulness for people or places, but it's really short-term memory and a person's level of engagement with life. And so often these patients will be more apathetic, maybe not, they're not able to enjoy the things that, or derive joy from the things that they once found enjoyable. Sometimes people describe them as being apathetic or living in a fog, and that when treatment is performed, which is typically in the form of what's called a ventricular peritoneal shunt, after the treatment, people will say that the fog is lifted. So they'll feel more engaged, more present in life, and they'll also have some improvement in memory and droids, which is great.
1: That is incredible. You were talking about something new in the field of treating hydrocephalus.
0: If there isn't a new conceptual, so, so shunt surgery has been around for as long as neurosurgery has, and mm. it hasn't really changed very much in all that time. So, you know, well over 50 years. And the typical treatment for this condition and any form of hydrocephalus is to drill a hole in your skull and then put a plastic tube called a catheter into that cavity that holds the water in your brain. And then run a long plastic tube under your skin, sort of over your head or, you know, over the yes. bone, but under the skin. It then goes over your collarbone. And then we can put it into a Space where that fluid can easily be absorbed. So, the common place is to put it in in the belly, to put it in the abdomen. And so, you have this long plastic tube then going all the way down your body and then put into your abdomen so that the fluid can get out of your head and into your belly. That's the standard treatment for hydrocephalus today. And as you can imagine, it's associated with all kinds of problems, right? We did a study last year where we looked sort of like nationally at. You know shunts being placed and entered in large national databases, and like for example, what are the most common reasons for people being readmitted to hospital within the first month? And it all has to do with problems with the shunt. So it's either the shunt tubing breaks, or becomes disconnected, or because it's hardware in the body, it can become infected, or sometimes there's a devastating syndrome where the brain can't handle the amount of drainage that's occurring and the brain shrinks and pulls away from the skull. And that's called an overshunting syndrome and can be quite a serious complication. So, you know, these shunts can be associated with significant problems and, and that's even worse in the elderly population. So folks have been looking for more minimally invasive strategies to treat hydrocephalus and there is something new on the horizon that I think is gonna revolutionize, I think, how we treat this condition. And in particular, I think NPH is a good example. There's a company called Cerevasque that has taken a concept that was developed by neurosurgeons at Tufts University in Boston and essentially created like a mini shunt that can drain fluid off the brain directly into the bloodstream without ever having to do actual neurosurgery. So cut the skin over your head or drill a hole in your head, which mm. I think is amazing. And it also does away with all the tubing that we have to place from the from the skull all the way down into the belly area. And they call it an e-shunt. And the first patient to get this particular device, which is done all through a small puncture, a needle stick in your groin. The first person to get this device implanted was in Argentina. And that patient, his results and procedure were reported in a journal called the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery that was published in December of last year. Basically, very elegantly showed that you can effectively treat the hydrocephalus in another form of adult hydrocephalus, not NPH, using this system, which would have otherwise required a shunt. And so even though it's only one patient, It is the proof of the concept that I think is so important. And I think, well, if it turns out to be true and can be replicated, you know, in more patients, you know, this is going to solve a major problem that we've had in neurosurgery for many, many years.
1: You said it goes through the groin. How does that work?
0: So the way that, to explain that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause and sort of take you how we're organized, our, our heads are organized from the perspective of hydrocephalus. So okay. you, you can think of your scalp or your skin as wrapping paper around the hard box of the skull. So I'm knocking okay. my head. So that's mm-hmm. the box and the skin is the wrapping paper. Inside that hard box of the skull is a bag full of water. And inside the back floats the brain. And we're designed that way so that if you get in a whiplash injury, you fall down in your, your head, that your soft brain doesn't smash up against the hard box of the skull. There's this buffer. And so not only is there fluid in the ventricles, which is in the center of the brain, but there's also fluid surrounding the brain that's sort of like housed in this bag, right? Yes. It turns out that you can... You can, you can travel through a vein that's in your leg all the way through the veins in your body, all the way up to a vein called the internal jugular vein at the base of your skull. And then that internal jugular vein will, will make a turn into the veins that actually drain the brain at the skull base. And if you can use a little needle to pierce the top of that, you can create a channel between the inside of the bag, which houses the fluid and the bloodstream, which is where you're sort of traveling from. And when you remove the needle, which is a very short little needle, you can leave behind a little plastic tube or stent that now keeps a formal communication between the fluid in your brain and your bloodstream. And because the fluid in your brain is under higher pressure, then the pressure in your blood, the fluid in your brain will tend to travel out of your head and into your bloodstream. So effectively mimics what a shunt would do without having to have a shunt. It's an ingenious concept. And in fact, more closely replicates what happens normally physiologically in people. Whereas the way that that fluid is taken off the brain using the traditional shunt system is much more sort of non-physiological and sort of brute force. So this is a much more physiological way of getting fluid out of the head and much more minimally invasive.
1: Wow, that blows me away. Yeah, <laughs> it, it a- is.
0: It's, a, it's definitely, you know, every so often, there's, a, there's somebody has an idea that
1: is truly novel
0: and that this would be one of
1: them. Would this procedure be difficult to do?
0: yeah, we don't we don't really know, but I will say that the skill set to deploy this technology in patients is the same skill set that's required to take out clots from the brain when you're having a stroke. I don't know if you've ever had anybody talk about that particular revolution on your show, but you know the the management of acute stroke syndromes, has really been completely transformed over the last seven years, and so now there's a large number of proceduralists all around the country and the world, really, that have been trained to treat patients that are having acute stroke syndromes emergently. So there's actually a very large workforce of people that would have the skill set to deploy the shunt, which is, I think, one of the things that makes it such a great idea is because it's going to be so accessible to people. You're not going to have to travel to specialized centers to have this done. It can really be performed by anybody who has what's referred to as neurointerventional training.
1: I saw your video talking about new stroke treatments, and I'd love for you to talk to me to me about that in the future sometime.
0: Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. That's really been, I'm a neurosurgeon by training, and so when I was in training, neurosurgeons didn't really treat stroke. We treated bleeding in the brain or tumors or hydrocephalus or things of that nature, but stroke wasn't in our repertoire. And today, it's definitely one of the most common and certainly the most impactful thing that I do for a living. So that was another transformative technology that's come about during my lifetime.
1: Yes, yes, let's do that. Thank you. Thank you. What's next? I guess we have to see, A, how that patient one does.
0: The next step for the company is Mm. to have it cleared through the FDA here in the U.S. We've been very lucky to be involved in the, um, they call it Pivotal. So it's the study that will establish safety of the device here in the U.S. And I think that the first devices will be implanted in the U.S. in the coming weeks at three centers around the country, of which Yale University is one. And I think where we go from here is, you know, this technology not only offers the potential to treat hydrocephalus, but it's really a new access to the brain without having to drill a hole in your skull. And so that offers the potential to sort of imagine all kinds of conditions that can be treated through a minimally invasive access route to the brain without having to do neurosurgery. And this is only one example of the, the next transformation is I am getting older and getting into the later part of my career, um, I think that my generation is focused really on abnormalities of blood vessels when you're traveling in blood vessels, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we've developed very nice techniques as a community to be able to access blood vessels in the brain. And so far, my generation is focused on fixing blood vessel problems in the brain. There's a whole new field that is emerging. Thevas and eseshanence is part of this revolution where we're using the blood vessels in the brain as an access or a path or a road to get into the brain minimally invasively and, and treat other neurological diseases that have nothing to do with blood vessels. And so, Isha and is part of that story. There's another company that's out of New York that's led by uh, neurosurgeons at Mount Sinai called Synchron, where they're actually building brain machine interfaces where you can use your thoughts to control a mouse and control clicks on a computer using just your thoughts. And so that's a device that's also implanted in blood vessels in the brain the next generate, my next generation, right? The people that I'm training are going to basically be using these sort of blood vessels as access roads to treat other neurological conditions. And I think these are the two best examples that we have today as the field is emerging.
1: Well, I don't think you'll be put out to pasture anytime soon. (laughs) I have to think about what you just told me. That's just mind blowing. Yes, it, it, it it really is.
0: Yeah. That, that fellow's name is, Thomas Oxley out of Mount Sinai. He's an Australian neurosurgeon who works between Mount Sinai and New York and Australia. And he's really been, um, I think, leading that effort of what they call brain-machine interface, which is like essentially using your thoughts to generate electrical signals that can then be translated into action. It's it crazy, right?
1: Wow. Well, this, this has been enlightening <laughs> to, to say the least and and down yeah, the road that, that, to talk
0: about stroke Stroke one is a great public service thing i think just yes. because it you know people think that grandma had a stroke there's nothing to do you right. don't have to act with anything uh-huh. and that's totally not the case anymore you can completely reverse the symptoms of a stroke if you get to them early enough just so people should really be aware that those treatments are available